Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. As churches around the U.S. begin to open, ACC is opening as well. However, to stay in compliance with the CDC, we're having just one service at 10 a.m. on Sundays with 25% capacity. You can sign up on our website. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information. It's an easy website to remember, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can contact us directly through there or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. Well, uh, it's good to see you this morning. Um, I want to take a a quick moment before we dive into our message and just really uh, give a big shout out and thank you to Brian and Mark. And I just want to let you all know how um, awesome our team is here at ACC and how grateful I am to have them, people who can shoulder a burden and who are faithful in teaching God's word. And um, that keeps me very sane, <laughs> you know, to be able to, to um, share that burden with others as a collaborative effort. And I think that's a healthy thing, and I'm really thankful for it. Uh, we are going to finish our series in Daniel today. And so, woohoo, we did it. Um, second half of Daniel. I don't know if you've ever just read it, but man, it's, um, it's like difficult, crazy stuff that has always kind of eluded me as far as really getting the, the deeper pictures of what's going on. And to some extent, really honestly, it still does in a big way. Um, and if you recall, uh, chapters 10 through 12 are all part of one big self-contained kind of unit. They're all part of a big vision about what's to happen in Daniel's future and ultimately our future long-term And last week, Mark talked about chapter 11, which is a very large account of all these movements like chess pieces on a chessboard of these different kings battling it out, duking it out, putting their confidence in their fortresses uh, rather than God being their fortress and so on. And so that ranged from Greece to Syria in the north all the way down to Egypt in the south. And what I want to do this week is uh, actually pick up at the end of chapter 11 And when I first start reading it, you're going to be like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, You know, just, it seems like random information, but I'm going to, I'm going to tie it in and talk about why it's important. And then we'll read chapter 12, or at least most of it as well. So let's go ahead and read Daniel chapter 11 and start at verse 40. All right. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. 
And I, I think the following statement, personally, I believe, is um, not like what happens next, but kind of a statement of the whole thing, okay, of, of, of what he set out to do in general, but what actually happened. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Okay, that means in general, all this culminates to someone tried to believe that they were more powerful than God. They were going to set themselves up at the epicenter of, of God's place, his holy mountain, and rule the world as such. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now we shift into chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. All right, what's the book? Uh, some would say it's the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and so on. I want to pause right here uh, and first of all ask, where are we at in the story? Okay. This all seems like, wow, that's interesting information, but what we're supposed to recall is if you read the whole book of Daniel as a whole, what, what you've got is we're always talking about the same series of events, basically the same period of time, and then kind of pointing towards the future. And that period of time is first characterized by um, four empires that would come from Babylon's time, and it was, it was shown as four kinds of metal in a statue. And, and I believe personally, there's dispute about this, but my personal take is that we're talking about Babylon and then the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then the Roman Empire. And then you get to chapter 7, and that empire breaks down, those empires break down more as you get more specific. You start to see that the Greek Empire is a leopard with four heads because there's four rulers there. And then the, the last one is like ten horns, represent ten rulers. And one of those horns is this horrible, awful ruler, and so on. And so by the time you get to chapter 11, now we're getting like really specific with all these, you know, details. But really, we're still talking about the same series of events. And so it's kind of like this, all right, the way Daniel works. You got this little paper doll here, right? This is one piece of paper, okay? You can look at it right here. Who do you see? You see one, one guy, right? And now how many do you see, right? Two, two people, but this is still the same piece of paper, okay? And then you get three, then you get four. The more you look into Daniel, the more it expands, yet it's still talking about the same thing, Okay, so, so I want to give that as like a little bit of perspective on the, on the backdrop here, because basically where that would put us now in the story is the end of Daniel 7, where it says the holy people of God, represented by a figure called the Son of Man, a true human one, will ascend to the right hand of God and receive dominion over a kingdom that will never end, authority over all the nations of the world forever. So the holy people of God, through this representative figure, the Son of Man, that's their story. That's the end of the story there. Now, that would be then the people whose names are written in the book. And I'll just share a little interesting revelation that came to me this week. Um, I didn't realize it before, but if you want to know what the book is, it's in Genesis 5, the beginning is. Genesis 5 begins with a genealogy of Adam's family line. And it says specifically, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. 
That means mankind are those who reflect God's image. Okay? Male and female, and he blessed them. He named them mankind when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him what? Yeah, but was that Adam's first son? No. Right? Why, why isn't Cain on the list? The reason is because this is a list. This is the account of God's people who reflect his image as true humans, naming them mankind. Cain traded that image and began to look like and reflect the image of a beast instead. He has a genealogy in Genesis as well. That's not this book. That's a destructive book, okay? So this picture is the son of man, the holy people of the most high, and those whose names are written and found in the book are the same distinguished genealogy of people who will receive dominion and authority and so on. So the question is, is your name in that book? Is your name going to be found in that book? Is it going to be added to that list that started in Genesis chapter 5? Verse 2. Now we move forward in history. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, Roll up the seal, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. Now I'm going to skip down a little bit. Daniel sees two more figures. One of them asks how long it is going to be until these things are fulfilled. And he says it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Well, that helps. Uh, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Most people would point that event to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. Okay, that's like the culminating moment of the power of God's holy people being ultimately broken because it has never been restored. Verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel. It's a secret. Because the words are, that's, I added that, but that's actually in one of the translations I have. Um, that's literally kind of what it says in the Greek. The words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of deep and even confusing stuff in here, and there's been a lot of speculation about what it all means. 
So I pray that the real important things that you want us to hear would penetrate our hearts this morning, and you would speak to us where we're at and the time that we're in, and give us hope for the future. It's in your name I pray, amen. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is a passage discussing how the people should respond to someone who claims to be a prophet. It says that if their words are found to be untrue and their prophecies don't come to pass, they should be put to death. Whoa. So don't go claiming to be a prophet unless you're really sure what God has given you. Now, I'm not sure if it actually meant that they did that or if they were cut off from their people. There's some you know, possible confusion in the language. But I watched a documentary last week, and that documentary was um, a Christian guy and a Mormon guy, LDS man. And they sat down, they were in Israel, and they sat down, and he basically was applying this test. And he was walking him through some of the teachings of the self-proclaimed prophet of Mormonism, Joseph Smith. And he was showing the, the prophecies and the things that he had said. And then he was exposing through history and in the Bible how those things didn't come to pass. And he was bringing it to a challenge and saying, shouldn't you therefore put this man's prophecies to death? And it was a good case. But I thought to myself as I began to study Daniel chapter 12... I wondered what that Christian man would have said if the Mormon man would have turned around and attempted to apply the same logic here. Because at face value, it looks like there's some problems. Okay, is Daniel a false prophet? If so, according to the logic of Deuteronomy, this teaching should be put to death. And most of Daniel chapter 11, scholars agree on, because it's crystal clear it leads through the events of the Greek Empire, culminating with a really awful ruler named Antiochus uh, IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who did terrible things, and it's really laid out specifically in Daniel 11, so specific that nobody argues with it. Until you get to about verse 36, between verse 36 and verse 40, suddenly it gets kind of foggy, and by the time you get to the passage that we started reading, there doesn't seem to be a transition in characters, and yet the events no longer seem to match history. And so you go, hmm, what's going on here? Then you've got chapter 12. Okay, and at first glance, it looks as though the period of time being discussed was supposed to come to an end a long time ago, and that was going to be the end of it, right? The resurrection of the dead would occur. And what about those seemingly random numbers? 1,290 days, 1,335 days, what do they signify? And if they're literal days, well, man, that time came and went a long time ago. So for that reason, I want to address kind of the prophetic historical context of this passage as kind of part one of this message, and then we're going to make it kind of personal in part two. And so it's a little bit headier to explain these things. You might, some of you are really into that stuff. You'll enjoy it. Others are kind of like, Man, I don't care. How does this relate to my life? I think it's important because anyone who honestly wants to put their trust in God needs to be able to answer this question. Can I trust this? Or do I just kind of set it aside as one of those troublesome things and just pretend it doesn't exist? Okay, so we need to go there. All right, we're going to go there a little bit. All right. Uh, first, let me give you a little disclaimer, though. I'm going to share what I think is the most reasonable way 
to interpret this, but I want to fully disclose that my knowledge here is limited, okay? I haven't gone into a lot of deep studies on all the different explanations, and there are many with much to consider. So I'll give you some history and some interesting points, but at the end of the day, this is one of those areas where there are multiple possible interpretations. This isn't the only option. All right. The majority of Daniel 11 reads as though it is talking about one person, the king of the north. And history matches up pretty well, as we said, until about verse 40 or so. So the first question would be, if the text doesn't indicate any shift to a new person or period, what right do we have to assume that there might be such a change, that we're no longer just talking about Antiochus? That's our first question, okay? Is there a precedent for such an interpretation? Now, the answer is yes, okay? For one, recall that in all these visions, like the paper doll illustration we got here, right? Consistently throughout Daniel, singular people or entities break down and represent multiple entities, okay? That's a pattern that's consistent throughout Daniel. So it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. Two, Dr. Michael Heiser, who wrote a lot about the spiritual realm, would definitely make a connection between the term the king of the north and the epicenter of dark spiritual powers. Okay, the rebel gods or Elohim. There's like the, the counter mountain in the north where supposedly, according to Enoch, like the uh, you know, the rebel gods rebelled and were cast down and so on. And, and so there, if you hear the term the king of the north, there's a good chance that what they would have been hearing is something like the Lord of Mordor, okay? Like, you, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Like, there's a term associated with that, and, and, and it's a very general term, even though we're in a very specific passage. The other question you'd have to then ask is, when you get to that second set of events, verse 40 and forward, is there a period of history or a person leading up to the coming of Christ that actually matches that description? And the answer is, yes, there is. Now, I'm going to take, and I'm going to agree with uh, the scholar, pastor that I heard named Gordon Hugenberger on this one in his interpretation. And what he would say is that in verse 40, what you get is the beginning of the Roman Empire and its advance east and south. And the first clue to that is that this ruler has a fleet of ships. Antiochus did not have a fleet of ships. Who had a fleet of ships? Well, history shows up, a fleet of ships shows up when Pompey of Rome, a great Roman general in 67 BC, was authorized by the Roman Senate to run his navy and army of 40,000-plus troops for three years to eradicate and cleanse the Mediterranean Sea of piracy. He finished the job in three months. And so looking around with his great army and navy, he's like, what should I do for three, the rest of my three years? He turned his sights east with conquests in mind. He took over Asia Minor, Armenia, then Syria... And by doing so, he becomes the king of the north. Then he heads down to Edom, Moab, and Ammon, or the people of Ammon. 
But while he's engaged in attacking those places, he gets a rumor from Jerusalem that there is a squabble over who gets to be the next high priest. And so he leaves Edom, Moab, and Adam because they're asking him to come settle the matter. He settles the matter. He totally conquers the Holy Land, just like Antiochus did. He breaks down the walls, storms into the Holy of Holies, and does all the abominable things that Antiochus had done. Moab, Ammon, Edom are spared, just as it said. So there's two clues right there that match up with history, a navy, and then specifically that these three places are spared and delivered from his hand. The text goes on to say Egypt will not escape. The text doesn't say that Egypt was conquered. Pompey didn't invade Egypt. And I'll read directly in a translation from the second century Greek historian Appian of Alexandria, who says, Pompey extended the Roman sway as far as Egypt, but not, did not advance into Egypt, although the king of that country invited him there to suppress a sedition. And he sent gifts to him and money and clothing for his whole army. He, Pompey, either feared the greatness of the still prosperous kingdom or he wished to guard against the envy of his enemies. That would be Julius Caesar of Rome who was starting to get angry at Pompey and wanted to take him out. So Pompey subdues Egypt, Cush, and Libya just like the text says, without conquest. And Egypt dumps its wealth into Pompey's army just like the text says. Pompey then receives alarming news that Julius Caesar is advancing south and Pompey is in his crosshairs. So they engage in battle. Pompey loses and he runs away to the south where he is murdered and no one is there to help him. Daniel 11 ends, if that is the interpretation, at the threshold of the coming of Christ. Within just a couple years, King Herod would be crowned in Jerusalem. And anyone who had this text would be anticipating the arrival of the Messiah at any moment. Now, here's why I wanted to share these details about, with you. This is what's so significant about this. You have to ask the question, do these events match up with events in history? Yeah, they sure seem to. If that's the case, and Daniel was, been, was being given an accurate prophecy of these events, consider this. We have copies of the book of Daniel that physically predate those events. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain eight copies of Daniel that include chapter 11, where these events are described and those physical manuscripts, those scrolls, are physically dated around 150 years before Pompeii came. That's fascinating. Okay, that should send a chill down your spine. The most liberal scholars would kind of would ignore this information and say, oh, Daniel was probably compi compiled over many years. There's some critical scholars who would say it was probably written in uh, like 200 B.C., around the time of the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus. If that's even the case, it predates what came next and anticipates it. And conservative scholars would say that, yes, Daniel was written about the time that it places itself in history in the 500s B.C., which would mean that all of it is accurate prophecy. The reality is we know that at least some of it 
almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, was actually accurately prophesied before it happened. Because we have those early copies. That's amazing. So if that's the case, the question is then, should we consider the rest of it reliable? And if it's reliable, what does that mean for us? And we need to seriously ponder that. We get to chapter 12. Suddenly it's like all this time is condensed. Why isn't there more detail? Daniel asks, my Lord, what will the outcome of all these things be? And he, and, the, and he said, go, Daniel, for the words are secret and are sealed up until the time of the end. Why isn't Daniel given more specifics about what happens between then and the end of history, the resurrection of the dead? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8, he says, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now catch this. None of the rulers of this age understood it. And by rulers, he's probably also referring to the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. None of them understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? Or if he, as, if, as Ephesians 3.10 says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, the secret that Daniel refers to, he wasn't allowed to see it, was even kept secret from the angels that were giving the message themselves because if God was going to reveal his plan then instead of trying to conquer God's king and destroy him on a cross, which actually sealed their own defeat and his victory, they wouldn't have touched him. They would not have tried to crucify Jesus. So that's why I believe Daniel doesn't get the specifics of the plan and what was to happen next. But he does get the end. He does get the end of history, as a hope that's given to him. You, Daniel, will rise after you rest. What is that hope that he's given? Resurrection. Resurrection hope. Notice, in speaking about his future hope, heaven is never mentioned. What is resurrection? Resurrection is the ultimate culminative hope for history. This is where all the story is going. Basically, the way the early followers of Jesus understood what they were seeing in the resurrected Jesus was that what God did to Jesus on that first Sunday morning, Easter morning, was what he is going to do to all of mankind and all of creation. The goal is not that we evacuate out and leave the physical creation and go to heaven for eternity. In fact, whatever happens between when we die and the future resurrection is really vague in Scripture. In the bosom of Abraham, sleeping in the dust of the earth, um, Paul says they're asleep. He says it's better to be there because you're with Christ um, there's martyrs under the altar. Their souls are crying out for justice. There's, there's some, kind of, some kind of conscious existence, but that is never the point. 
The point is that history is going somewhere. God doesn't throw it in the garbage for some disembodied spiritual place. No, he restores and rescues and redeems his creation and makes it completely new when Jesus returns and the dead will be raised to a new physical bodily existence that can never perish, just like Jesus is today. That's the story. That's the end of, of the story. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about this. You can go listen to our Easter sermon. It's all about this if you want to know the specifics a little more. Who will be raised? Who will be there? As we said, it's those whose names are written in the book. And the book is the legacy of God's people, the true humans, the son of man, the ones who bear the image of God, not the image of the beast they were made to have dominion over. But in particular, he says it is those who are wise. What does he mean by that? Who gets to be raised with Jesus? It's those who are wise. What if I don't consider myself a very wise person? You know, I, might have dropped out of high school or whatever. Does that exclude me? No. I want to look at a portrait of wisdom as described here. The word wise here, there's a couple words for wisdom in the Old Testament. One is chokhmah, and it's kind of wisdom like we would think about it. Um, this word for wisdom can also be translated as successful, victorious, or prosperous. Okay, it's a, it's a wise person who ends up down the right path and is successful, okay? That's, that's kind of the, the picture of this kind of, of wisdom. This is probably what Jesus is talking about when he says in his conclusions to all the letters to the seven churches, those who are victorious or to the one who conquers, I will give the keys to the kingdom or you will reign with me at my father's right hand just like he called me to reign at his right hand. You know, this, this is like the same idea. The one who makes it until the end and does not turn to the right or the left. So our first point, four points, what's the portrait of someone who is wise, resurrection wisdom, okay? It's those who stay the course. Those who stay the course. The word is used in Joshua 1.7 when he says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from the right to the right or to the left that you may be successful. Same word, wise, wherever you go. What does the law of Moses say? It begins with, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I do not turn to the right or to the left and look somewhere else for life. Because it's those who fix their eyes on following Yahweh, their God, who arrive at their destination. The wise, successful person is the one who does not turn away from the true God. Proverbs 17, 8 uses the word, a bribe is seen as a charm by the one who gives it. They think success, wisdom, will come at every turn. And that is a big message in our world today, isn't it? Right? Today we live in an age that says, look, it doesn't matter what path you take. At every turn there is wisdom. At every turn you'll get, whatever you, wherever you turn, whatever path you go down, You'll get to a destination. You decide what's true for you. You decide what path you want to go on. It's your feelings that define truth for you, right? Or it's you can't define truth. There is no truth. So you kind of make it for yourself. Jesus says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. 
but narrow is the path that leads to life. Wisdom, success, is not found at every turn. There is only one path, one road, that leads to being a person who reflects the image of God to the end and therefore finds himself in the book of those who are raised in God's kingdom at the end. Only through God alone. So that was number one. The resurrected wise are those who stay the course. Two, it's those who lead many to righteousness. This is not a condition for salvation, let me add, but it's a description, a portrait of the wise, okay? Who lead many to righteousness. They will shine like the stars forever and so on. Those who are delivered by faith in Jesus will also lead others to faith in Jesus. We'll make disciples of all nations, as Jesus calls us to. I want you to remember the prayer in Daniel chapter 9. There's a big expose on trusting in God's righteousness, right? Leading many to righteousness would be leading people to trust in God's covenant faithfulness, to trust that he is just in all of his judgments, that whatever happens in our world here and now, we don't always see the plan or know the reason why, but we can trust that he is just and wise and he's got it under control, that he owes us nothing. Forgiveness are in, in his hands. It's his to give. He's done nothing for which we should forgive God, right? These are the words of Daniel 9. God is just and righteous. He's in the right. We are not. But it calls upon his mercy to forgive his people also because of his righteousness. For the sake of God's reputation, forgive your people. Forgive us because we are the people who are supposed to represent you, bear your image, bear your name to the rest of the nations. So forgive us, otherwise you'll be a laughingstock to the nations. Right? We're sinners and God is just in his judgments against sin, yet because God is just in righteousness, he forgives the sinners for his own name's sake. And it's to take up the banner as a people who bear his name, representing Yahweh to the rest of the nations. So that was two, those who lead many to righteousness. That's a portrait of the wise one. Three, they suffer. They suffer. Daniel 11.33 says, Those who are wise, same word, will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword and be burned or captured or plundered. Now, in a way, this is reassuring because it means that when we suffer, when we go through hard times, tribulations like today, we are assured that it is not a sign of God's absence or displeasure or neglect towards you. It's the contrary. It's, this is what he said would happen. Some of you are suffering trials of various kinds right now. Paul writes that we should consider it pure joy, and I don't think that means that we are emotionally giddy or joyful, but that we should consider it pure joy because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been put in our hearts through Christ Jesus our Lord, as Romans 5 puts it. So the wise is one who suffers. For, as Daniel 11:35 35 says, some of the wise will stumble. 
so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The portrait of a successful, wise person in God's kingdom is not that they are perfect. Far from it. But we trust that God is bigger than our failures. I don't know what your history is, what your life is, but if you are kind of like tuning in, sort of questioning church and wondering if you could ever darken the door of a church, and maybe that's why you're only watching online, but you're wondering, is God, are my failures too big for God? No, the portrait of those raised with him include those who stumble. This is not a game changer for God. Sometimes it's part of the process. It's what he uses to refine us, to purify us, to make us spotless. There is no barrier between you and coming to faith in God through Jesus. The resurrected wise are not successful because they managed to never stumble. They're successful because they maintained faith in his righteousness and worshiped him above all others until the end. Basically, the wise are those who successfully endure adversity from within and from without. And in the end, still hold fast to God's word and righteousness, not turning away to the right or to the left, nor here nor there. And they lead others to do the same. They will rise and shine like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars forever and ever. This is a picture of the Son of Man description. Remember the picture of like the, the horn on the goat is one who throws down the starry host of heaven so he can raise himself up, but he will fall but those who trust God, they'll be put in that place. They'll be put in a place where they shine like the stars forever and ever. So where are we at right now in this picture? That's what everyone wants to know right now. You know, like, like look at the, the, the pandemic and the division in our country. This has got to be the end times when Jesus must be coming back soon and so on. Does Daniel give any clues to this? And in my opinion, the answer is yes and no. Yes and no, okay? Where are we in this picture? Let's talk about those random days for a second. 1,290 days. <clears throat> Blessed is the one who makes it to 1,335 days. I think we're right between those two periods of days. What in the world are we talking about? Okay, when numbers show up in the Bible, if they are not literally talking about a literal period of time, which maybe some think this is the case, I don't know, the first question you ask is, where else do you find similar numbers in Scripture that give you a clue to what the author is talking about? All right? 1,290 is 430 times 3. 430 is the exact amount of years to the day that the Israelites were captives in Egypt. And in the Bible, when you triple something... It adds emphasis or makes it a more intense um, thing. Okay, not holy is the Lord God Almighty, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a complete, you know, all-encompassing holiness because it's said three times. And so at least what you could get from this is that the angel is telling Daniel, look, what's coming is Egypt times three. 
What's coming is a total captivity, exile, tribulation period for God's people. It might have something to do with the following empires from that period of time, Persian, Greece, and then Roman. But he says it's from the time of the abomination that causes desolation, so it might not mean those things. I don't know. How many days are between 1290 and 1335? 45. After the captivity in Israel, how many years until the Israelites entered the promised land? 40 plus two at Mount Sinai plus however long it took to conquer the land. I don't know. Maybe it was 45. Maybe five has meaning. Five often means a, a power symbol of a five-fingered hand, the hand of God, the power of my mighty hand that reaches out and you know, does these things. It could mean something like that. I don't know. There's all kinds of possibilities. What I think it means is he's saying there is going to be a distressing time that we have described to you already. Daniel 2 through 11. Then there's going to be a deliverance. A deliverer will come. There will be a tribulation until the final power of God's holy people is utterly destroyed. Deliverance came in the person of Jesus Christ, who took upon himself all of our sin and the weight of all of mankind's evil upon himself so that he could offer to us as a gift his righteousness and we could be forgiven and be counted among those who receive the Holy Spirit and are raised, resurrected with Christ. He was raised as a first fruits. Daniel did not see that. He was raised as a first installment of many brothers, those who are coming at the end of time. In the meantime, there, were, there was an apostolic age from which we get our New Testament scriptures that included a lot of tribulation such as has never been seen before, Nero, Domitian, and so on until the destruction of the temple, which ultimately ended that empire period of time of the four empires and gave rise to the church age, which is like having come through the Red Sea, being liberated from Egypt, which is associated with coming to faith in Christ through baptism. And we are already but not yet people. We're not in the promised land yet. Resurrection hasn't come yet, but we are in a desert place where we have the Holy Spirit. We're being taught what it means to trust in God and in his faithfulness. As we, are, as we learn how to trust him, we're being refined through testing. There was a lot of testing in the wilderness, and we're waiting for our Joshua to come and lead us over the river into the promised land once and for all. So I think that's right between 1290 and 1335. And I think the numbers are symbolic. And I could be wrong, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Daniel's pretty mind-blowing. So how do we interpret it for ourselves today? I don't know when the end will come. Jesus might be waiting until his rule through the church reveals his wisdom to a lot more people. Or he might come soon. But I think I know where we're at, as Hebrews puts it. He, he puts us right there in that 40-day period in the desert. 
And that means that our job is to wait, but it is to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as 1 Corinthians 15, 58 puts it, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We don't just sit back and wait. We're laboring with Christ to enact the rule of his kingdom, learning what it means to trust God in the wilderness as we wait for our Joshua and resurrection. It all sounds pretty intense and crazy, but I want to come back to you. Is your name in the book? How do you know? Does your life fit the picture of those who are wise, those who are successful until the end, not turning from the right or the left, or are there many paths in your life, many sources of hope and many promises of success? And maybe you're watching today because those promises are kind of falling through the cracks and in this turbulent time, you're looking for something a little more stable. I just want to invite you that you can have a relationship with Jesus today. You can fall on his grace and his mercy. You can respond to him. You can come to him. And your past, your failures, your stumbling is not too big for him. You can have a clean slate right now. Your name can be written in the book this moment. And if you're watching right now, I believe it's because God is drawing you to this moment because he wants you, he is pursuing you, he wants to count you among those of his beloved children who trusted him and reflect what it is to be really human and not some beast like all the animal humans we see in our world right now. So will you trust him today? Why don't we pray together and if that's a decision you want to make right now, why don't you just start by just praying something really simple with me? Let's all pray. Father, a lot of people have contempt for you. And when they are raised, that's their eternal future. Contempt. Cain's name is not in the genealogy of the humans, mankind, Adam's lineage that actually reflects your image as a true human because he chose to exalt himself. He chose to take a beastly path and that was his legacy. Maybe that's been our legacy. Maybe that's where I've been. I've been angry. I've been searching. I've been wandering. God, we want to come home. We want to fall into your compassionate arms and receive your mercy and forgiveness. You're calling us. We're responding. So, Lord, we recognize our sin and our desire to be made spotless and purified and whole, and we surrender to you, to Jesus. We ask you to have your way and fill us with your spirit and cleanse us today. And Lord, for those who have prayed that prayer at least once or many times, if they've never followed you in baptism, like going through the Red Sea, acting on that deliverance as we wait for the ultimate deliverance, the promised land, I pray they'd make a decision to follow you through the waters there too.
And for the rest of us, Lord, who probably do follow you and need some encouragement today, as Daniel did, after all these distressing messages and visions, he was finally told, Daniel, you can rest. You can rest. Someday you will rise and receive your inheritance. Give us your rest today, Lord. Not passive rest that is okay with just sitting back and letting the world go to hell in a handbasket around us. No, but an active rest that labors for your kingdom, but is at peace and joy within ourselves, with our own stumbling and suffering, knowing that you use it for your glory and you have a plan and you're in charge. That's the message of Daniel. Make it go home for us today. Settle it in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you ever prayed that prayer, if it was the first time for you today, make sure you tell us about it. Write in on our website or online. Whatever you've got to do, talk to someone. Don't just let it slide. Make us aware. God bless. Let's sing a song together. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you, and you always have a place here at ACC please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or just need someone to talk to. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.